0: Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless them and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. "'Live in harmony with one another. "'Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. "'Never be wise in your own sight. "'Repay no one evil for evil, "'but give thought to do what is honorable "'in the sight of all. "'If possible, as far as it depends on you, "'live peaceably with all. "'Beloved, never avenge yourselves, "'but leave it to the wrath of God. "'For it is written, vengeance is mine. "'I will repay,' says the Lord. "'To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. "'If he is thirsty, give him something to drink.' For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do it as good. And you will receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, and owe no no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. This is God's word. and You may be seated. Yesterday I got a notification from Major League Baseball on my phone, which I get a few of. um, And it said, for Mother's Day, uh, all games you could stream for free. And I thought, Mothers did not come up with this idea. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is one of those things that mothers today might be going, why, why is my son and why is my husband just like watching so much baseball, right? And then I, I wanted to laugh at that. And then I realized that today, for some reason, we planned uh, to talk about the doctrine or the foundational Christian belief of the state. So essentially, we decided to talk about politics on Mother's Day. Um, it's almost as bad as uh, streaming baseball, right? I hope, I hope it's not. I, re- I really hope it's helpful. Uh, but, uh, but it is a little funny. It's a little off theme. But we're Mission Church, and uh, being on theme has never really been our, our big thing. So welcome. And I, I hope you enjoy the ride. So we're, we're examining foundational Christian beliefs. Uh, so we have, we have gone through a number of them. Uh, we started with just the, the belief that Christians have in a revelation from God. That's kind of foundation number one, that God has revealed himself to us in his word. Um, and if, if you can like get over that idea and say, well, that could be God might communicate uh, to us in specifics, then you would say, so what has he said? And then you could start to learn the specifics about who he is, what he's done, and so on and so forth. And so we've built... These foundations, these layers of this foundation, um, upon each other, and so I just want to confess today that uh, there's there's a lot undergirding what I'm going to say today that we have indeed talked about. I'll try to touch on it, but there's a lot of steps you have to take before you talk about something like the state. And so, know that's true. Know that that those sermons are out there. If you want to go, if you want to go plow into them, and I will do my best to pull it all together. And of course. I felt a certain measure of trepidation coming into today because this is like in this era of our time, it feels like the weirdest thing to talk about. It's like, can we not? Um, can we talk about anything else? But in a way, it's almost like we need to more than ever. Um, we really, we really must. So why do it? Why did we even plan this in the first? We planned this a year ago, um, and we planned it because. If you look at old confessions of the church, uh, which, which we did, we took some cues from some of the older confessions of the church, every single one of them in their day saw the need to define what the role of the state was. They were in a very different situation um, in, in some senses, but they all saw the need to help people understand what the role of the state was in their lives. And I think today we don't need that, we don't need that less, we need it more, right? If you're... Um, you know, if you haven't been under a rock this week, there's church and state questions in the news. Um, and if you have been under a rock, that's great. Um, rock, you've probably been outdoors doing some really amazing things, and uh, I'm, I'm happy for you. But, um, but yeah, you know, the the leaked uh, the leaked Supreme Court document Roe versus Wade. I mean, wow, this is a this is a big question of how does how does the state and uh, how does the state and the church relate? Um, it's being talked about all around us. You can you know almost any any media outlet. Um, is discussing this very topic. It's, it's the big thing, right? So why would we not ask questions about that? Um, not only that, though, but as many of you know, and some don't, nine days is a local election. Uh, these are, there's, there's one main decision on there, but the truth is many of us you know, tend to not even realize that's happening or that's coming and how that could impact our lives. And uh, if we're called to love our neighbor and seek the best for our communities, we have to to know about these things. We have to understand these things. We need to, to some degree, be involved. Because the definition of the word politics, uh, if you really trace it back, it's essentially this. It's essentially the idea that everybody lives in shared spaces, the word politics comes from the word polis or city. So you live in a city with people together, um, you have to make decisions together. That's really all it is. When you live in a city together, you gotta make decisions together. We gotta do it. This includes working in the public sector. Some people work in, in the city, in the school, in what um, the, uh, the old philosopher Augustine would call the seculum, which is, um, that, that is that during this time, a seculum means an age or an era, um, we gotta work together in spaces. Not just We don't just live in a city, we work together. In these spaces, and guess where the word "secular" comes from—from from that very idea—that that secularism is that you have to work together and you have to live together with people who have different views. That's what it is. We're all doing it. We're all doing it. We got to give input. We got to vote. Got to do the community surveys. Um, you know, the zoo's expanding. The zoo expansion has changed because there have been community surveys. These things happen. Um, some of us volunteer, some of us work in our neighborhoods and associations. And so the call of the scripture that I read today is to love. If you notice, it's bookended, the whole front end part of it's about love and the end part is about love. And what, what I'm saying today and what I think Paul was saying by putting this idea of politics right, bookended by the, the idea of love, is that part of our love for one another includes the shared life we have with other people. That's where love happens. That's where the rubber meets the road. So for the common good, we have to love. The Christian life calls us to love and then calls us into the common life. Um, And so then, you know, like I'm saying, we got to do it. We got to go into these places. We got to do these things. And we go in with um, our assumptions, our values, our philosophies. In a real sense, we come into, in our context, into these voting booths um, with, with a lot of assumptions, essentially with a faith um, attached to us. Um, and often we, when we bump into these conversations with other people or we look at the person in the voting booth next to us or the person with the bumper sticker that differs from us, we think, you know, they, they know all the same. They have the same assumptions I do. Well, they don't. They don't. You're coming in from all these, these different angles. So the truth is we all, we all come into these spaces bringing in something from our faith. And so we need to understand probably what our faith teaches us about how to do that. We all come in with assumptions that come from our faith, so we should probably understand our faith. And I don't just say, if you're out there and you're like, I'm, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, um, I'm not just saying this to Christians, I'm saying this to everybody. You should understand what your view of the world, your philosophy, your faith um, says about What politics is, what the state is for. So today we're looking at the Bible because we're Christians. We're going to ask, what's the state for? Out of this section from the book of Romans. How the Christian faith should shape our political action and how Christian faith shapes the political self. And this is sort of what, um, this is my, kind of what I want to impress. This is what I want to impress. If we walk away with this today, I will be thrilled. Christians ought to be people with a robust moral vision and gospel humility seeking to truly love their neighbor as they await the day when King Jesus beautifies human political life. Christians ought to be people with a robust moral vision and gospel humility seeking to truly love their neighbor as they await the day when Jesus beautifies human political life. So what's the state for? Last week we talked about the church. That was the, our foundational belief for last week was the church. And we learned that our belief uh, in Christianity about gathering th- with others in worship at his invitation was first exemplified in what we would call the Garden of Eden. Um, and there's a, there's a misconception out there that Eden was like the entire creation, but it wasn't. It was a space, it was a place within the creation where people walked with God, they were shaped by his word, his wisdom, and his presence, and then they were sent out into the world to do work. Um, and so they were sent from the church. You know, if you will, Eden is where they, they connected with God and church just means where you gather, the gathering place. Um, they, were, they were gathered there and they were sent. And so when people went out from Eden and they went out and they did their work and they developed things and they engaged with other people, what would they do? But they would come back into Eden to commune with God and invite people back in with them, And then those people hear and are shaped by the presence of God and go back out. That's the pattern that comes to us from the second uh, chapter of the Bible, from the very beginning. So in a sense, these first people of Eden, these people who are in this worship space, are like the priests and the missionaries of early times. And in a way, nothing's changed. People are still supposed to be shaped by the presence and the word of God, and they're still sent out into a world that isn't Eden, um, and they're still called to return there and to invite people back in. But the ancient people, when they read this, this stuff about Eden and they read about that paradise in the scriptures in the East, um, they would have seen more than just religious overtones. They would have seen royal overtones because in the ancient world, the gardens were, were what the kings had. Okay, So you can read about things like King Solomon... In the Bible, who not only does he develop great books of wisdom, but he has beautiful gardens. This was a very royal idea that that royalty ruled not not just from the high tower, but from the from the beautiful and lush garden. So the so the Christian vision of politics begins in the garden as well. People were shaped by God's presence to to rule and reign, to be like priests, but also to rule and reign faithfully in his stead, and in that way, others were blessed when they went out into the world and did good works and were compelled to be brought into the kingdom, um, but also into the church. And you, and you hear a very similar thing in the New Testament, by the way, where we're told what happens to Christians, they're given a new identity, you're a kingdom of priests. He takes, God takes the idea of, of priesthood, of religion, and of kingdom, of politics, and fuses them and says, in a way, you have this role. You're like kingdom priests, okay? Wow, that was a lot going on from early Genesis, and I just threw it at you like a brick, didn't I? How are you doing out there? Great. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about ancient Israel as well. So ancient Israel comes along later on in history, of course, through uh, a promise God made to a man named Abraham. Ancient Israel is a body politic. They are a community. They are shaped by God, his presence. They have a tabernacle in their midst. Their worship is at the center of their, like not only, I mean, they're physically, it's at the center of the camp, but it's at the center of their lives. And in some ways, they were very distinct from other nations because of the wisdom, moral vision, and, and ultimately the God that was in their midst, right? But their aim, what was their aim? Isaiah 49 tells us in other scriptures, they were a light, out to the world, out to the nations. And to be a Hebrew was, contrary to what some assume, not about ethnicity, because the patriarchs received an external but very intimate sign, circumcision, that marked them out from among the nations, but they all came from somewhere else. They were included not because of their ethnicity, but because of their faith. So people could easily convert into Judaism from all of the other nations, and Abraham, the first Hebrew, was not born one. He was declared one, which is interesting. He was a non-Jewish person, and he was declared by God to be one of his people, received the sign by faith, and then became one, okay? God spoke to him, and he trusted him, and he became one of God's people. So in the Bible, there's a kingdom of God um, that's like Eden and Israel. People are invited into it by ambassadors that are sent out into the kingdoms of the earth, who are like a light to the world with an invitation to come to faith by God's grace. Because grace is when it's given, not earned or deserved. Okay, what a theology. What about Tucson, Arizona, right? What about the city of Tucson? What about the state of Arizona? Well, because God created all people to rule and reign, there's a calling and a pattern that all governments have that traces back to this, including the city of Tucson. What is it? Essentially, one way I think we could describe is the highest vision is that governments should be so good that they would be virtually unnoticed. So good, they'd be virtually unnoticed. What do I mean, what do I mean, I mean by that? Why well, you might think, Andy, I've never heard of this idea of the garden being like, like a government. Here's a, there's a reason for that. It was so good, they didn't even have to describe it that way. That's why. The people in the garden didn't come before a God um, who didn't understand them. He, he understood communal life, and he just exuded it out perfectly. This isn't a God that made up something foreign to himself. Think about this. This God who they met in the garden who created them, um, who's so mysterious to us finite people, but he, in the very beginning, is communicating to some, something. He said, let us make these things. Let us make man in our image. And he creates mankind. He creates kind of a a trinity of mankind. He creates men, women, and children. He immediately creates community. And we read in the scriptures about God in different forms. God is Father, Son, Spirit. And, And you know what that means? That means that God is a government. And he makes governed communities in the very beginning. But one so perfect, we don't even notice God the Father's authority is so good that the Son and the Spirit desire to bow to it. They don't have to vote for anything, right? They don't have to protest anything. They just love it. The Son's obedience is so wholehearted that there's no need for the Father to bring out his justice, though it's part of who he is. But he doesn't need to execute it. And the Spirit is so ready to serve, there's no need for rule books or code enforcements of any kind. When they say go, the Spirit goes. It's so good. It works so well. You don't even notice it's a government, but it is, right? And families created by God should, should mirror that. Fathers should be so good that their children look at them and say, everything you say is so wise, right? Which my daughter's like, yeah, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? And, and, uh, and children should be just so ready to serve that they say, whatever you say, I trust you, right? Like, these things should be, and cities should work this way, and countries should work this way, and counties and collectives, because all the elements are present there the authority, the servants, um, the, it's all there. We wish we had it this way, don't we? We, we? we wish Tucson, there was a Tucson where the mayor and council were so good that we just, when we heard they're doing a speech, that we would all be like, hey, everybody, we got to listen to this. Like, it's going to be so good, right? Like, that's that's how we, we all should feel. And the citizens should be so good that judges and lawyers just sit at their desks with nothing to do except to expound on the amazing and beautiful principles of the law. They should just speak of it. And people should be like, wow, what would it be like to even not do that? That's how it should be. And those tasks to protect and serve should spend all their time blessing people and making them smile and pulling practical jokes because there's so little to deal with. There's so little death and disease and decay that they just go, you know what, let's go make somebody laugh. That's how good it ought to be. And we wouldn't even notice. But okay, let's dial it down just a little bit. Let's dial it down. All authorities could at least be known for their love and good works, right? And when people were disobedient, disobedient, all would agree that their punishment was for their best interest, right? That would be better. That would be good. And peace and prosperity could be so ubiquitous that the idea of lying, cheating, stealing, or escaping reality through drug and alcohol abuse would feel just like a path that nobody could imagine taking. Because the alternative is so easy and so good. Now we could dial it down just a little bit more, right? because that all seems kind of too good to be true. And we could just say, because the world is not the way it should be, and because people sin, and what I mean by that, sin is when you miss the mark of perfection on purpose or on accident, and when people rebel and they're internally broken, um, at least the state should minimize the effect of that as much as possible. That should at least be true, right there. And that's how the old confessions read. The old confessions enter in at reality. And they say things like this, we believe that because of the depravity of the human race, this is the Belgic Confession, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. God wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. And I think we all want that. We all want a, a government that we notice a little less, because it's doing such a great job, right? And maybe you say, I I don't know if I do. I don't know if I do want that. Um, Well, go visit somewhere that doesn't have it and get back to me, right? Um, Little sneak peek, you know, you can have, there are these drastic moments, but uh, Michaela and I um, were in San Diego and then three seconds later in Tijuana, right? And we had a great time. Um, Love Tijuana, but you fear for your life. Um, about three seconds after you crossed that border, right? The first freeway you merge onto, we literally were like, yeah, seriously, a car almost nailed us, like immediately. And, and I've been there before, and it's not, that wasn't an anomaly. And um, your life behind the wheel, the, the homelessness, um, the beaches are littered. There was a school, we were walking the beach, and you couldn't like relax because there was, there was a school where the whole balcony had fallen off. And about three to five feet was overhanging the cliff. And there was a pillar on that overhanging part where you're like, I everything I know about building and physics says that's coming down and half that school is coming down. And then we walked back up and realized when we were walking down the street, the school's full of kids. School's full of kids. And it starts making you, I am, if you know me, building code and permits And speed enforcement are not my favorite things. They feel like really frustrating red tape. I don't know why that technically to put in my dishwasher, I need a permit. That feels ridiculous. I know. See, you're feeling it. Until you go somewhere that doesn't have code enforcement and permit enforcement, and you see that schools are hanging off of cliffs. And you start to go, okay maybe that's kind of good, right? Okay, so that's the role of the state, to keep that peace, to keep that order, to make things to work as well as they should, to mitigate the effects of sin, which is what, where all that comes from. It should be so good, though, that we don't even notice it. But because the reality is the human heart, we need more and more, and more of it, and it's harder to accomplish. So, let me uh, read again what Paul wrote in Romans and look at what I'm talking about here. He wrote this to to the Roman Empire, to people in Rome. Talk about a political mess! Empire, you know, emperors who claim to be gods, gross inequities, brutal torture. Also, the Pax Romana, which means there was a peace that came under the Roman world that really uh, was significantly better than a lot of what had happened under a lot of other civilizations. But still, very broken. Here's what he said to people in a very broken system very ungodly. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. This is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying it's, it all dates back to our creator. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And look, Paul, Paul um, by the way, he's, he's talking about the way it should be. You can see him. there are moments where he talks about his Roman citizenship and how he shouldn't be mistreated for that. He's not a fool, um, but he's, he's saying, in general, you should, you should be in subjection as far as you possibly can, right? I hope you see in there the principles I'm showing you. God instituted the idea of, of authority and, and really what government should be, but now it's difficult. It requires taxes, subjection, instruments of subjugation. It still has a role. We need it, but it's a lot more difficult. So how Christian faith should shape our political action um, this should really be the third idea. I'm just uh I moved it up because I wanted to land on the other one, so I took a little liberty. I hope you'll forgive me. It comes from the very last phrase, "Oh no one, anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law Here's a little quiz: two greatest commandments in the Bible are what anybody remember Jesus That's right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When Paul uses the word law in the book of Romans, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about those two greatest commandments, and they get expanded out throughout the scriptures into what we usually call the 10 commandments. I have a button. I'm in control. There it is. Look at that. That's the first time I got to do that right there. Um, So they get expanded out into the Ten Commandments. Um, These are now called the the two tables of the law, usually in theology. And can I just tell you how hard it is to find one that has four on one side and six on the other? That's how it's supposed to be. Like every stinking image of them is five and five because they like symmetry. Come on. Anyway, so this one's like cheesy from a graphic design standpoint, but it does everything else I need. The the, fir- the first table of the law has to do with your relationship to God. This is worship. This comes under the heading of the church, okay? The second uh, tablet of the law has to do with, you could say, politics. It's how it's love your neighbor. Um, the one, they all fall under love your neighbor. The other, they all, or sorry, the one they fall under love the Lord your God, and the other, they fall under love your neighbor. You love your neighbor by honoring. Um, honoring father and mother is a seed doctrine that grows into politics, how you should love those who are, Um, who should honor those who are in authority over you you should not kill right you should not commit adultery it goes on and on and then all of the other laws in the scriptures can be traced back to one of those every single one of them so they're like it's like this tree there's or like a hill or you know you can imagine at the very top is love god love your neighbor is under it and every other command branches off of those and they're all absolutely connected none stand alone um you really you really can trace it all the way back um so here's a helpful exercise. If you don't understand a law in the Bible, try tracing it back to see what it goes to and try to understand it. Um, I'll take an obscure one. I've talked about it here many times. The parapet law, uh, Deuteronomy 22.8. If you build a, build a house, you should build a parapet around the roof. What is that? It's a little wall, right? A lot of flat roof houses in Tucson have these. And they did this so that people wouldn't fall off roofs, right? And so they, that, this is what God was saying was, was like, hey, Because people hung out on the roof, put a little parapet around it, so your toddler doesn't go off and die. That's what it was for. And so what can you trace it back to? Thou shalt not kill. Except it expands the idea of thou shalt not kill further. It adds nuance because it's saying do not kill even by the neglect of foresight. Not only don't kill on accident, but don't kill by neglecting the foresight to design something well. So it's adding nuance and detail to the law, but it's still traced back to that law, which then can be traced back to love your neighbor, which can then be traced back to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you have to think about there, There's modern laws that are like that. There's hundreds of them, right? They're pathways to loving your neighbor, and we probably need more. But here is how sin works. A modern law I've broken. I'm going to let you in a little a little bit of my law-breaking past, right here. You ready for it? The clarity of window glass. Arizona Revised Statute 28-95 or 959.01 states that the front window of a vehicle may only have a non-reflective film. For me, that law got in the way of a few things. Um, when I was a kid, I went down to one of the uh, one of the South Side window glass places, and uh, and I had some goals. I wanted to hide my expensive stereo system. I wanted to keep my vehicle cool. I liked the way that it would look. And I thought to myself, that those are all good reasons. And then they told me it's illegal. If you get pulled over, you're going to get a ticket. Um, but at this shop, they said, but, you know, we'll do it anyway. Um, so I knew there was a law against it, but I, but I saw that I said, look, there's a law against it, but I don't think this is going to be an issue for me. I think I can handle this. I think I will be fine. I think I can see Um, and it's not a big deal. Well, one night, while I was driving in the rain, I made a right-hand turn, and in my headlights, a guy on a bicycle, and it's wet, it's raining, and I missed him by inches. I almost took him out. And imagine the damage to him, his family, myself, my family, if I'd killed that man, right? Needless to say, I had an opportunity to repent and let go of my freedom and my self-expression, to love others, and ultimately to love God. No matter what my intentions were and how good they were and how much I thought I could handle that freedom, I learned that love was being stewarded through obedience to an Arizona statute. And I'm fortunate I got a chance to repent and I didn't kill somebody, right? Now, I don't want to focus on me repenting and like, oh, look at me, I did the right thing. I want to put focus on those who created Arizona Revised Statute 28-959.01 because I can bear witness it is a law that leads you to love, to not kill, and to love your neighbor and to love the Lord your God. It's a good law. I disagreed with that. Now, I agree. Okay? Okay? The best laws are the laws that lead us to love our neighbor the most because that's the purpose of the second table of God's law. And those who love the maker of the ultimate law should be the best at loving their neighbor. And I do not mean that professing Christians are always the best at that, but we should be. And if you can tell a, a tree by its fruit, our public life should be a clear indicator of the genuine nature of our faith, so we should at least be increasing in our love of our neighbor. Now, what does it mean to love? To please them or give them what they want or they prefer? That's what the people at the tint shop did for me, right? Well, in my story, I didn't tint my windshield because I hated, hated America or hated Arizona or hated bike riders. I tended it because it was beneficial to me, and I wanted it. I wanted freedom. But that law was loving, though I didn't like it. Think about a law in the books that you wholeheartedly affirm, and then ask yourself, does everyone like it? Does everyone like it? They never do. There's one that you love because of some experience in your life, and not everybody agrees. I guarantee it. So our definition of love must come from somewhere beside public opinion or, as in my case, from ourselves. It has to come from something higher because we're never all going to agree and we can't base it on our own opinions. So where could it come from? If there's a God who created us, who we should worship, then a robust moral vision comes from that God. And being shaped in worship and knowledge and wisdom of God's word would make us the most wise and loving citizens. Now, you might say, what if God commands something I don't like or I disagree with? And I'd say, this is perfect. You found a real God. You found a God. If you found a God that always affirms you, you might have a sneaking suspicion you created him. But if you can find a God who's able to critique not only others that you disagree with, but you you should be compelled by this God. If you can say, this God critiques me, you might have a real God on your hands. And that's good news. You might have found God. We tend to think, I want to find the God that agrees with me. No, you, you, then you don't find one. But now God doesn't just shape Christians according to a robust moral vision he provides. That's not the only way he wins us over. He doesn't just win us over by showing us he's smarter than us but because he loved us first. He calls us to love and he loved us first. How do you discern his love? Because he is merciful and gracious to us. And Christ, think about this, the obedient citizen dies for the thief on the cross. Wow. The, The giver of the law is willing to suffer for the one that breaks it. This goes beyond just wisdom. This goes beyond one who can just critique you. This, this God lays his life down. This is something we've never seen before. Even before we saw Christ in history, he didn't include people based on their behavior. Remember Abraham? He includes people just because they trust him, and that's grace. So what does that mean? If you consider yourself a Christian and you're part of a community of God's people that are sent out, it's not because of your righteousness. It's only because of Jesus' faithful citizenship that you're included in the community and given a mission, and that must instill deep humility. You're not better than anybody. And any version that doesn't instill deep humility is a masquerade and is actually anti-Christ. That's a concern. Look, if you're looking for a God who can cast a moral vision, you want to find one who's truly loving and who you can trust. The God of the Bible casts the moral vision, enters in in Jesus, and dies for those who can't live up to it. That's an incredible balance of grace and justice. And it's not so people can get away with stuff, but so that we can learn to love God from our hearts and be transformed into the type of people who carry the vision with humility and grace. The moral vision must be carried with humility and grace. So, how does the Christian faith shape political action? It provides the moral vision we need, and it provides the grace that can change people. Provides the humility we need to engage others without self-righteousness. And you might be going, "But Andy, what do I do with Roe versus Wade? Which version of the school or the, of the zoo plan do I vote for?" Go apply the tools trace things back through the law, say, if we went with this option, would it break any of the love your neighbor commandments? Then how would it honor God? Just apply the principles, you'll know what to do. Now, how Christian faith shapes the political self. It's time to to engage the beginning of this text. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, Give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I went back and listened to the entire book of Romans. Sometimes I do that like on an audio Bible or something as I'm preparing a sermon. Um, I like to read it, but this was a busy week. Um, The book of Romans is all about the Christian community and the Christian community shapes you to do all these things. This is where in Romans 12 and 13, the entire book of Romans has been talking about the type of church that could shape you to do these things, and that's what you need. And it's anchored in the grace of God. And it's very, there's some very important things in the book of Romans as well. Like in Romans 1, um, we show that there was a debate about you know, the nature of Israel and the church. Uh, Romans 2 shows that Jesus is the true Israel, the son that pleases the father, the faithful heir of the kingdom. Romans 3 shows how promises made to Israel are realized in the church or the gathering of God's people. Romans 4 identifies the church under King Jesus as the new Israel. Romans 5 looks at what it means for ethnic Israel and says they can be included by the same grace, by the same pathway. And the discussion goes on and on into the point we're at today that shows how the church relates to a secular state like Rome where Christianity doesn't rule and have a voice. And why is this important? Because it's very common in church history and now for people to mix up what God is doing in the church And in the kingdom, he promises to develop in and through the church and complete when he returns with the secular nation state. They mix those two up. Paul does not do this. I truly wish I had more time to unpack this, but Paul does not expect Rome to utterly bow to Jesus. He expects Christians to bow to Jesus and therefore live for the good of their neighbors in Rome. And the same is true for us as well. And people should see your work, good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And sometime to do this, you're going to have to show up in things that really only benefit others. Long time ago, I, I've, got a, I've got a crazy, I have a traffic light, okay? It's mine. I'm so pumped. It's right up at Plummer and Broadway Boulevard. Because I got invited to a meeting, and I went to several of these, and they were very long and tedious, and there was lots of looking at papers. And at one point, something jumped out at me where I said, why isn't there a light at Plummer and Broadway? people are always in a long line right there and sometimes they hit the pedestrian button and they jump out because they can't get out and it, it kind of it's just not good and they were like oh really and I said seriously and then a little guy wrote he drew a picture of a light on the paper and then one day I walked out of my office right there and I was like it's there they did it they put in my light it's not just my light right like I've seen the backup of traffic. I've seen the dangerous situation where people get out and have to hit the button. And if they're going to add a lane to the road, it's not going to get better. It's going to be harder to cross. Right. So there's a light. Man, it happened. And it happened, thankfully, because I hung in there and I kept showing up to all these meetings that really felt like they didn't do me a whole lot of good. Paul doesn't expect Rome to bow to Jesus. He expects Christians to bow to Jesus and live, and therefore live for the good of the neighbors in Rome and in Tucson. That's, that's something he's instilled in us. And this means, friends, a couple things. It means the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. It's not. But, but, friends. The kingdom of God is not unconcerned with, happen, with what happens in the United States of America or Tucson or your block or on the local school board. We're called to sacrificially serve within a kingdom that doesn't belong to us to exhibit a kingdom that we do belong to and how powerful it is and how beautiful it is. It's not one or the other. Why Does God care about what happens in the USA? Let's ask that question, because there's a a number of reasons. Number one, he loves people here. He plans to bring them to himself through our witness. That's very true, but that's not all. He loves people here and wants to save them from tinted windshields and killing bicyclists. He wanted to save me from that. He wanted to save that bike rider from that, which is why that law was good. He loves us and wants to wants us to learn to love our enemies as he has exhibited to us. And when we move out into public spaces, you'll meet your enemies like he did when he found you and me, right? He wants us to learn that. And because when things are orderly and good, things can grow and thrive. And we as Christians have a motive to work at things without an immediate payoff. They're not giving me any money for my traffic light. I don't know why. I think there should be a commission on that idea, right? But I don't get squat for it. I just get to look at it, right? Um, But we have a motive to work without immediate payoff because we believe that a kingdom is coming in its fullness. And that can sound a little crazy, but it's actually an extremely powerful motive. It might just be good enough to be true. I believe it's loving and godly then that we engage in the zoo plan and try to make it the best it can be. I believe it was bad for our city and for the kingdom of God when we wiped out cherished cultural centers of Latino life in downtown. I think we blew it. It's good for our city when we can trace our laws back to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor and take that seriously. And that takes time and spiritual investment, and you have to look at it from a number of angles and you have to like allow yourself to be open to critique and say, am I loving my neighbor right now or is this about me? But the people who can do this well will understand the kingdom of God exists. It's real and we're participants. It's been inaugurated. It has a king and that king is Jesus. He's the head of the church and we would love his law. And then we won't go about doing politics being angry or disoriented or afraid because the state doesn't look like the kingdom of God we'll be able to be faithful and full of energy because the real kingdom's going to come nothing can stop it the christian political self is not is confident and non-anxious because it stands in faith under the banner of king jesus and in confidence that his grace covers our sins and that same grace will bring about the best possible future the world could ever imagine it's going to happen you don't have to be worried When we think the state can mess up our lives, that it's ultimate, we'll be terrible citizens. You can't even love your city or your country well when you think it's all there is. You'll be too self-centered. You'll either leave it or resent it. But when you know that you're safe and secure in Jesus and that his kingdom is already reigning in your heart and it's coming to this world, we can go into the world and love no matter the cost. Christians ought to be people with a robust moral vision and gospel humility, seeking to truly love their neighbor as they await the day. This is the key piece. As they await the day when King Jesus beautifies human political life. Why did I say that? Because in the end, in the book of Revelation, a city descends and the reign of God is with people, and we live in a city where God is at the center. That's politics. Perfected. We'll live in a city together full of peace because of King Jesus. We can only do that when we understand what the state is for. It mirrors the perfect harmony of our communal God, and in our time, it's a restraint on sin and disorder. When we understand that Christianity actually can shape people for profoundly different political action in this world, a high moral vision pursued with humility because of the power of grace, and when our political selves are shaped by Christianity, we'll be confident in the coming kingdom of God, non-anxious in the here and now, loving freely, no matter the cost. Um, and to do it, we're gonna need to feed on Jesus constantly because it's hard to believe and hard to remember. And that's why the Christians declare a crucified king amidst the watching world and over their souls. The conclusion of our worship is always to come to the table, and here we re-center on the person of our king and the way the kingdom comes. Through sacrificial love, a gift of grace, and a promise of a beautiful future. Jesus declares that the bread on this table, uh, that was part of an ancient Hebrew feast, um, is now His body broken for us. The perfect citizen, crucified by the state, in place of those who had, um, of, the, of those who disobey both God and man. We are like the thief placed next to Him on the cross, and He offers us a place in paradise. There were two thieves, though. One saw how unique He was, and the other didn't. Do you see what a good king he is? Then Jesus passed the wine to them and he said, this is my blood shed for your forgiveness. Truly I tell you, he said, I won't drink this wine again until I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. That's an incredible thing. You know what that means? That means there's a big party someday in the middle of a city where Jesus holds up a glass of perfect wine and says, let's drink. How sweet. That means every time we drink this, it's a foretaste of a day when we gather with all the nations around tables and eat together with King Jesus passing around the wine? Why would our hearts be afraid when that's what we look forward to? Before, um, or for those who place their hope in these things, we're gonna come forward in a little bit. Before that, though, we're gonna have a silent time of confession. This is for any of you to cry out to God, to confess sins, to repent, for, to ask him to instill this hope in the kingdom down in your soul. And then uh, Mike and the band will lead us in music. I'll steward the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to conclude with a meal. And everyone's invited to that. For the Lord's Supper, the question is, will I trust him? But then for the meal, it's shared like, like all the spaces in our city. Everybody comes, believers and skeptics, sinners all. Let's eat together. Let's talk. Let's glorify God. Let me pray and we'll enter into this time. Father, thank you for your word. As I've thought about these things, as I've thought about this kind of vision of of common life that that really has come from you, it's not like the state is some weird zone in which our Christianity just has to kind of like get stuck in a box. But at the same time, you shape us so differently. I just thought, where does this fit? How does this even work? And then I thought of you, Jesus. Jesus. That's how you were in this world. You didn't fit, didn't feel like it worked, but your kingdom has never ceased. We are, we are just a small group of millions who fed on your body and blood just today. Your kingdom has grown. It really is like a tree in which all the birds of the field can gather, and it's been incredible. So help us to have faith in you and what you've done. And we all come to this kingdom because of your mercy. So as we think about our unworthiness, I pray that you'd give us great boldness to approach your throne of grace. Because when we sinners approach your throne, you don't cast judgment down upon us. You're excited and ready and willing to forgive us. You're just glad we're here. And you want to invite in everybody else. So make us agents and ambassadors of your grace. So lead us now as we pray and make us glad in your presence.